has spoken about those who've perverted the grace of God and denied Christ as their Lord and Master, he says in verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they fe as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, that are they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. These words are God's words. These are dismissed for junior church. So worship God together, just like we do up here. Would you do this? Would you pray with me? Because we need God's help. Prayer is simply saying, God, help me. And when we pray together, we ask for God's help together. We need that. Father, I thank you for your word. It is true. It's entirely true. Um, but it's very hard to understand sometimes. And sometimes it's, it's not just hard to understand. It's hard to believe. And we pray for faith this morning. We pray for your spirit to actually give us spiritual ears to hear. That we wouldn't just go at this thinking that we've read this before, we've heard this all before. I pray that your spirit would cause it to be fresh and alive. That we would know that we don't just read the Bible, it, it reads us. Because it is a living word. <coughs> I pray that you would give us uh, hearts that will humbly submit to your word, humbly submit to your authority, so that we would have lives of glad, joyful obedience to King Jesus. We ask this uh, for your glory and our good, and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Warning labels. We don't really take them seriously, do we? They're everywhere, aren't they? I mean, Think about uh, the last time you bought a cup of coffee, either at Dunkin' Donuts or somewhere. Bold letters, right? Caution. Contents are hot. You'd expect that if you're buying a cup of hot coffee, right? You want it hot. But they warn you anyway. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there are lots of silly warning labels too. Uh, laptops often come with a couple different warnings, but one of them is uh, never use while you're driving. Good idea. I've seen it though, haven't you? I've seen it. It's, uh, it's probably a legitimate warning. Or how about chainsaws? Yep. Never stop the chain by your hand. 
It's there. Every chainsaw has the warning. No kidding. A seven-inch globe says not to be used for navigation. Yeah, not to scale, right? Warning labels are everywhere. They seem absurd. They're on everything. And they seem absurd to us because if we would just use a little bit of common sense, we wouldn't need them, right? But because they're everywhere, a lot of times we become dulled to the warnings all around us. Uh, and we might actually, if we're not paying attention, miss the warnings that are actually a matter of life and death. You know, the Bible is full of warnings. The Bible is full of warnings that unfortunately some of us might think are absurd. Or we might have thought, well, I've heard it before, of course. And we lose the urgency of some of those warnings. We are studying from a letter called Jude. It's a, a letter written by a man named Jude. He was the brother of James, the first senior pastor in Jerusalem. But he was also the half-brother of Jesus himself. Jude was once someone who thought the warnings of Jesus were crazy. He thought Jesus was crazy until he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus and came to believe in him and follow him as Lord. Well, he wrote this letter as a warning to his church because there were people who were sneaking into his church who were dangerous. They were dangerous to the faith of those who were following Jesus. They were potentially bringing destruction into the church through their false and perverted gospel. So Jude writes this letter to say, warning, caution, alert, alert. Beware these false teachers. They are destructive and they will bring destruction. They will they are destructive and they will actually even be destroyed. Stay away from them. Know who they are so you can stay away from them. Beware. So I want to invite you to turn to this letter of warning, Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible right before Revelation. We're going to pick up in verses 11 to 16. Uh, and last week, last week was kind of a heavy sermon full of, of bad news and good news, but a lot of bad news, right, in the middle of Jude. And we saw how Jude gave us three examples from God's history of redemption and how these past examples of judgment were meant to alert us, the church, of present danger facing the church. This week, Jude is going to actually talk more about the present danger within the church and warn us of future judgment. Future judgment for these false teachers and those who actually get caught up in their false teaching and never come to faith in Christ. They were led astray. We are warned of that future judgment and the destruction that these false teachers bring with them. Let's do this. Let's read verses 11 to 13. Turn there to get ready. And what we see here is that Jude is going to spend his time right in this passage warning us of the present danger of these false teachers. 
And he's going to say that these false teachers are actually a present danger. They are destructive, not just one day when Jesus comes back to judge them, but right now they can actually wreak havoc on your faith. So he gives us some warnings, uh, really two categories of warnings. The first one is that their path is dangerous. Where the false teachers are leading you or potentially leading the church, that very path is full of danger, full of destruction even. What Jude does here is he actually takes three different examples, not events like last week of unbelieving Israel and of the angels who rebelled against God in heaven and of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not those events, but now he uses three different people. Have you ever had someone say, hey, you remind me of, and then they fill in the blank. It's kind of scary, isn't it? It depends on who you remind people of, right? And uh, Jude says, hey, these false teachers, they remind me of someone. They remind me of Cain. Would you want to be reminded, be reminded of by Cain? No. Of Balaam and of Korah. Well, those two you might not know as much about, but those aren't compliments, are they? Well, Jude here reminds the church that these false teachers remind him of these folks. We'll take a look at verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Look at that again and notice the progression of danger. They walked with Cain, right? They abandoned themselves to Balaam's error and they finally perished in Korah's rebellion. That's the path that false teachers are potentially taking the church down by their perverted gospel. They're, and that what they were saying, if you remember the first two weeks, is that God is full of grace, people. He gives us grace and we're forgiven. Don't get so worked up about your sin. Everyone sins, but God's grace is bigger, so don't worry about it. They were preaching half a gospel, a grace that forgives but not a grace that transforms. They were giving a license to sin to the whole church. And they were okaying all sorts of sin so that God's grace could abound. But Jude says, when you do that, you're following in the footsteps of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Well, let's just think about a couple of these, right? Cain. Cain did what? He happened to... Murder his brother, didn't he? Yeah. Um, but Cain was not always a murderer. First, he wasn't murderer Cain at first. At first, he was jealous Cain, wasn't he? He was jealous that God approved his brother's sacrifice and not his own. And so, you know what God did? God didn't immediately judge Cain. In Genesis 4, we see that God came to Cain and he preached to Cain. He told Cain what he needed to do to change, how to repent and be made right with his brother and with God. But Cain rejected God's word, didn't he? He rejected God and he rejected God's word. That's why Cain killed his brother in cold blood. Think about this. This is not just a story. This is real. 
His jealousy and his rejection of God's word led to murder. Jude says, you false teachers remind me of Cain. You're rejecting God's word. You think that you can change and pervert the gospel for your own needs and desires. But what happens? You hurt other people in the process. You are in the process of spiritually killing others by rejecting God's word and changing it. Church, warning, beware people who reject all of God's word or parts of it. They are walking in the way of Cain. Jude also warns the church and says, these false teachers remind me of Balaam. Balaam. When was the last time you read or heard about Balaam? Uh, probably not this week, unless you were reading Jude ahead of time. Any of you? Maybe? Please? Last week. Okay. Good. Balaam. You can read about him in Numbers uh, six, uh, 21 to 31, uh, 22 to 31, kind of the middle section of Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible that Moses wrote. And Balaam was a prophet, but he was a prophet for hire. He had a message, and it didn't matter what that message was as long as the money was right. He would preach it. You got the money, he's got a sermon. Dangerous, isn't that? Because greed controlled Balaam. That's exactly what Jude here is connecting the dots to. And so if you read Numbers, what, came, uh, what Balaam did was a foreign king who wanted to take down Israel hired Balaam to preach curses against Israel. But Balaam wanted to make money on both sides, and, and so he ended up twisting even the message of the foreign king and the message to Israel, all for money. But in the end, he brought destruction upon Israel. He actually enticed them and tempted them into sexual sin of all sorts and they experienced God's judgment. Jude says these false teachers remind him of Balaam. They're just in it for the money. They abandon themselves for the sake of money. Just like Balaam, these wandering preachers probably travel from church to church and they twisted their message just enough um, to get their desires met, to get just a buck. The next is that Jude says these false teachers remind him of Korah. It says that they perished in Korah's rebellion. Well, if you know much about Korah, he is the ancient rebel without a cause, okay, right? Korah is the quintessential ancient rebel. And what did he do? Well, in number 16, you see that Korah read, led a mutinous mob, mutiny, in the desert against Moses and against Aaron and really against God. Korah and his following that he got to follow along with him, they were upset because God chose a specific spiritual authority over them. He chose, God chose, by his grace, not because they're anything special, he chose the tribe of, of Levi, the Levites, to be the spiritual authority over Israel. 
And so Korah twisted God's words that said that you would be a whole nation of priests in Exodus 19 and said, see, we're all supposed to be priests, not just these Levites. So he twisted God's word and he rejected God's leaders and he brought others along with him. Jude says these false teachers are doing the same thing. They're rejecting the authority of the apostles. They're twisting their message and they're trying to build their own church with a false gospel what did god do to korah and his mob do you remember god opened the earth underneath them and the ground swallowed them up that's like out of something from a movie isn't it that's but it's not a movie this is true god judged korah and those that he had deceived False teachers are dangerous. They're warning labels that, that Jude is giving that we cannot afford to brush off. Jude wants us to be aware of their danger, that they are taking us, they're tempting us with a path that is actually dangerous and it is destructive. They're a great example for us too, though, aren't they? Because so many times we might be tempted to think that my sin doesn't hurt anyone else, right? Right? especially if no one else knows about it. Our sin always brings destruction on others. These ancient rebels remind us of that, and these false teachers do too. They're destructive like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And you know what? In the end, they will be destroyed. And those who follow them too. So be on the lookout. Be aware of the danger. You would think that Jude right now would actually take us into that final judgment. But instead, in verses uh, 12 to 13, he, he lingers on this, this idea of how dangerous these false teachers are. And what he does is he slaps some more of warning labels on them. And he does this through, just he piles metaphor upon metaphor, doesn't he? Take a look. He, he transitions from the path that is dangerous to their promises that are false. Look at verses uh, 12 to 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wow. That's intense, isn't it? He wants us to get the point. False teachers are dangerous. Warning, their promises are false. So if you're hoping in their promises, you are going to be led astray and you will be destroyed with them. Let's just walk through these metaphors and, and, and think about this. Let them each sink in. Try to, try to imagine them. Hidden reefs or submerged rocks. That's what they are. They're hidden reefs reefs and submerged rocks at their love feasts love feasts what's that sounds a little weird well love feast was uh, a term for their communion service uh, they had a genius idea right combining the lord's supper with a potluck genius i know and and that's how the early church always celebrated the lord's supper as far as we know always with a meal always as a family 
problem is there was a danger in the midst of the fellowship. There was a danger in the midst of their love feasts. These false teachers were eating the bread. They were drinking the cup without fear, even though they denied the grace of God to change their lives and denied the lordship over the lordship of Jesus over their lives. They ate without fear. Sure, they celebrated Jesus, but it was a Jesus that they were making up. It was a Jesus that, yes, died for their sins, but not a Jesus who would come back and return in judgment. They left that part out. They were a danger to the Christian community. Hidden reefs sink ships, right? Sink ships. Hidden false teachers sink churches. Beware. They're also shepherds who feed themselves. They are shepherds who feed themselves. Think of that image. Denying the sheep their true food, their true sustenance for life. Instead, they're busy feeding themselves. Maybe a lamb once in a while for themselves. I don't know. But either way, they're selfish. They're not about protecting and guarding the sheep. They're just there for their own desires and their own plans. They couldn't care less if these sheep died. That's what these false teachers are like. They're also clouds without rain. Think about the Midwest and the corn drought, right? That's going on. And they see clouds in the sky. And they're thinking, finally, rain. But the rain never comes. Their hopes, their dreams, their livelihood is destroyed by these false hopes of these clouds without rain. And these false teachers are like that. They promise life, but they bring death. They are autumn trees without fruit. Autumn trees without fruit. They promised spiritual fruit, but instead they were actually devoid of the Spirit. They didn't even have the Holy Spirit in them that could produce the spiritual fruit that they were talking about. They were just natural, worldly men who were talking all these things about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, but they did not have the Spirit. And so Jude says they're twice dead and uprooted. They're physically going to die, and they're already spiritually dead. They are full of empty promises. Two more. Wild waves of the sea. And they're casting up the foam of their own shame. Like Garth Brooks, they're shameless, right? They're shameless. And that is not a compliment either. Not only do they not have spiritual fruit, they don't have good works. They specialize in evil ones. Evil, right? Evil works. Now, you, you might think, well, evil is, you know, like Darth Vader and, you know, the emperor. That's evil. But no, evil is selfish. It's greedy. It's judgmental. It's whatever that is contrary to the way of Jesus. And these folks, they are like the nasty, grimy sea foam on the edge of the beach with all the junk that's collected and they're foaming up on the rocks and just all over the place. And they don't mind. 
Because with their perverted gospel, they're under God's grace. These folks are the ones that Jude is saying, church, do not go near them. Do not follow them. Do not believe them. Furthermore, they are wandering stars. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I've never done it, but I've heard that you can actually chart a course using the stars, right, in a boat. You can actually navigate. People did it for thousands of years. Maybe if you're really crazy, you'd still try to do it now. You can chart your navigation by the stars, but not shooting stars, right? That would be pretty silly. That would be pretty dangerous. That's really what Jude's getting at. You can't trust them. You can't trust them to tell you where to go because they don't even know. And where they are going actually is going to end up in destruction. You cannot map your eternal destiny safely if you follow people who are faithless and who may talk about Jesus but pervert his gospel. A half a gospel is no gospel at all, is it? So, let's think through this just for a bit. How do you know how do you know if you are following a wandering star? How do you know if you are following a shepherd who actually is feeding himself? How do you know if you're being taught false promises and led down a path of destruction? Let me give you a couple examples. Have you ever heard this phrase? Have you ever thought this phrase? God just wants you to be happy. You ever heard that? You got happiness, which is always good, and you got God in the same sentence. It's a win-win, right? God just wants you to be happy. You can probably figure out a couple different ways you could apply that. Promise. But it's a false hope, isn't it? Does God merely want you to be happy? Is that God's chief end in his plan and his will for you to be happy? So much more than that. If you take that false hope, and run with it, you might contemplate divorce. Right? You might justify your lust. You might actually go a little further and, and fantasize about a relationship. Because you've believed a false hope, a false promise. God wants us more than to be happy. He wants us to be holy. Because he knows that is where joy is found. That is where healing is found. In trusting him through some of the greatest trials of your life and my life. A false promise like that also wrongly tells you that you are Lord of your life. You get to choose and define where happiness is found and where it's not. But Jesus is the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of your marriage. He's the Lord of your singleness. He's the Lord over every part of your life and mine. We've got to recognize that. That's not a popular thing to say, that Jesus is Lord, but it is a good thing and it is true. How about this one? Hell. Hell is just a misguided outdated religious fear tactic. God is love, people. And a loving God saves and rescues and he couldn't possibly send people to hell. Love wins. 
That's a false promise too about a false God. If there is no hell, then there need be no Savior, right? If there is no hell, is there even any true sin? When we deny what God has said, it opens up Pandora's box of destruction on us. If there is no hell, there is no need for a Savior. And yet God did send Jesus to rescue us. Not just from hell, but from the destruction of sin now that sin wreaks in our lives whenever we veer off from God's plan for us. Do you see the danger of messing with what God has said and messing with even the very power and promises of God? They offer false hopes and false... They offer false hopes that actually are rooted in a false gospel. And these false teachers, with their tempting false teaching, lead us away from the very power of God. They are destructive, and so we need to be aware of them. Jude transitions here. He, he not only talks about the fact that they are destructive, so we need to be aware of that, but they actually one day will be destroyed. Big words, strong words, right? But these false teachers will be destroyed. So he warns not just about present danger, but future judgment. Jude's been warming up to this one since uh, verse 4. He's been connecting the dots, saying that these false teachers are faithless, just like the wilderness generation of Israel, just like the angels who fell and rebelled against God, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. All of those faithless ones remind Jude of the false teachers in his church. And they remind him of them because they will be judged. God judged in the past and he will judge again. Whether these false teachers will admit it or not, they know it. They know it, but they have not changed yet. As we read this next section in verses 14 to 16, the danger level is up into red alert because not only will they be judged but all of the ungodly will be judged with them all all the ungodly meaning all who refuse to believe in the gospel who refuse to repent and follow jesus today is definitely one of those times where the spirit of god i pray is just calling us to say is my faith in Christ and in Christ alone? These are hard questions to ask, but the Word of God calls us, even those of us who have been following Jesus for decades, to simply take stock and say, how is my faith? Is it in Christ alone? To prove his point, Jude says that the destruction of these false teachers has actually been prophesied. It's been prophesied. Their destruction was designated long ago. This time, though, he doesn't turn to the Old Testament. He doesn't actually quote from the prophets in the Bible. He actually quotes from a very popular Jewish writing of his day called the book of First Enoch. You probably haven't been reading there lately either, right? But he quotes this book, not because he believes it's inspired scripture, 
but because of this portion that he quotes is in line with what God has already said and what God has already spoken. He quotes this uh, first century writing uh, and from Jewish literature, much like Paul quoted uh, even some pagan philosophers and poets in the book of Acts and, and in Titus, uh, much like we might or I might use a, a, an illustration, uh, say, from Lord of the Rings, which I might do later. Who knows? Um, he does this to say that this truth reminds me of God's truth, and it is true. He may be even quoting from this book of First Enoch because the false teachers might have been using it as some of their uh, resource to promote their false teaching. So he uses it as ammunition against them. Let's read it. 14 to 16, Jude 1. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude's point is loud and clear, isn't it? His warning is going off all over the place. And he says, the Lord, the Lord Jesus will return in judgment with thousands or millions of his holy ones, with angels and saints in judgment. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus warrior king who will come in judgment. He will come to reward his people and he will come to judge those who have rejected him as king. Strong, strong words, strong warnings. They will be destroyed and the Lord Jesus will judge them when he returns. You don't want to be near them when that happens, right? On what basis will Jesus judge them? Two, he will judge them because of their ungodly works and because of their ungodly words. Works and words, what they do and what they say. Both matter, and both are the reason why God will bring judgment through Jesus on them. Verse 14 says that they are ungodly. They are ungodly. They are actually faithless. They are anti-God. We like to think that there's a middle road where we're ambivalent about God, don't we? We like to think that we can be on the fence about God, but there is no middle ground. We either are either in submission to him or we are in rebellion to him. We either are trusting in him or we are rejecting him. And these false teachers represent a way of life that is so faithless and anti-God. Notice he says, that Jesus will judge them, not because they have wrong theology, right? That doesn't come up right here, does it? It says that they will be judged because of their ungodly works that they did in such an ungodly way. Look, their theology is wrong. We've already established that. And we need to be aiming for right theology. But it's not just right theology thinking that makes us right with God. It's right living as well. It's not just knowing about the faith. It's living by faith. That is so important. Faith justifies. It makes us right with God. But never a faith that is alone. 
a faith that is alone actually doesn't trust in God. It doesn't have the spirit to make us like Jesus. And that was their problem. They taught that Christians could live any way they want. And because they were under grace, God's not going to bring judgment. Don't worry about it. But the problem is, is that when you say something like that, there are people who might think they're Christians, but are not and will be deceived and will face judgment because of their false gospel. One of the reasons that the scriptures are full of warnings is to make sure that we are not self-deceived, to make sure that we are not just living a religious dream, to make sure that we are not just going through the motions. And that's why we are called to check our lives, to see if we are in fact trusting in a grace of God that transforms our life, not just that gave us that free ticket to heaven when we said a prayer years and years ago. Jude says that they are also judged because of their ungodly words. Words matter. What we say is an overflow of what's in our heart. If you see a tree that has rotten, nasty fruit, chances are something's wrong deeper down into the roots, into the heart of that tree. If our words are destructive towards others, if our words are actually misrepresenting God himself and his grace and the truth of his gospel, something else is wrong. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says that the Lord Jesus will judge them, convict them, because of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's quite the list, isn't it? Grumblers, malcontents, loudmouth boasters. Almost sounds like I'm cursing, but uh, I'm not. They're scoffing in the face of King Jesus himself, saying, (laughs) you're not going to come back and judge us. Don't worry about it, people. All judgment took place on the cross. And there's grace for all. All I can picture when I I think of these malcontents and loudmouth boasters is worm tongue. Remember worm tongue and the two towers? And he's, he's talking to Gandalf. He's berating Gandalf, right? He's despicable, this guy. And he says, why indeed should we welcome you, Storm Crow? Laugh spell, I name you. Ill news and ill news is an ill guest, they say. Ah, he's slimy, isn't he? People who reject Jesus' lordship over their life are just like worm tongue. They're speaking evil of King Jesus and evil of his rightful authority over their life. These false teachers rebel against Jesus' lordship. They like him as Savior, 
but not really Lord. They like forgiven sins, but they don't really want to have to fight for faith. They don't want to fight for holiness. They would rather just give in to their desires and their cravings. It's much better and easier that way. So they scoff at the gospel and they scoff at King Jesus and they boast instead about the dreams that they have about their false and make-believe faith. And because of their faithlessness, because of their ungodly works and words, they will be judged. Jesus himself will judge them at his return. Do you like that? Is that good news for you? Because most of the time, don't we like it when the bad guy gets it? I mean, there's a lot of, lot of stories, a lot of movies. You think about the movie, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Taken, but in that movie, the whole theme is that this dad is going to get the bad guys who kidnapped his daughter. A lot of people die in that movie just for one person to be rescued. But the overwhelming response to that movie is that, wow, yes, get the bad guy. We love it when the bad guy gets it. We love it when the guy in front of us from out of state who is speeding gets pulled over by the statey, right? Yes, justice is alive and well in the state of Maine. That happened to me like two weeks ago. I was like, that guy's going fast. Statey went by, turned around, and got him. I was like, I've never seen that. I've dreamt about it, but I've never seen it. We love justice. When other people are getting it. But we don't like it when we're the ones pulled over. We don't like it when we're the ones who have to be rebuked perhaps because we others see faithlessness in our life. They see unbelief working instead of belief. We don't like that. And Jude is getting in our face today. These warning signs are for us too. Sin is so powerful, so pervasive, so deceptive that we do not like to see ourselves as rebels against God, do we? No, we don't. But we are. Don't miss these warning signs. We need to ask ourselves, are we aware not only of the danger that others might bring to our faith, but our own hearts. That the unbelief that can start so small could actually grow in our hearts. Are we aware that our sin will absolutely be judged? Every human being who's ever lived and ever will live, their sin will be judged. One of two ways by yourself in hell forever or on the cross of Jesus Christ. Either you can pay the penalty of your sin forever or you can trust the gospel, the good news that God has provided a substitute and Jesus instead can take your place. So we ask ourselves, is my faith alive and well in the promises of God that are yes, in Jesus? Am I trusting in the gospel or am I trusting in a half a gospel? Am I experiencing not just a grace that forgives my sin, but a grace that transforms me? So think about this. Where are there some pockets of unbelief in your heart? 
that might make you susceptible to the tempting teachings of a false gospel, of a half a gospel. I'll help you think through this. Think about it this way. Do you grumble and complain against God? Do you grumble and complain against God? Do you actually argue in your mind, say, is God really good? Because I'm not, I'm not feeling it. Does he really have my good in mind? Our hearts do this, don't they? Our hearts sometimes tempt us away from the gospel. And our hearts say, maybe, maybe you'd be better off without God. Maybe I'd be better off staying angry. Feels good. Maybe I'd be better off to take another look. It feels good. It's better than God's plan right now. Maybe I'd be better off having another drink. Feels better than what God's got in mind. Maybe I'd be better off not reporting that income. I need the money. Maybe I'd be better off without Jesus' lordship over my life. Not only are these false teachers sneaky, sneaky, our hearts are sneaky, and our hearts are trying to sneak unbelief in place of faith in the gospel. What this tells us today is that we need a Savior, don't we? We cannot afford to give in to the false promises and follow these false teachers down a destructive path. We need a Savior. These questions that we just walked through are warning signs for us, helping us to think through what Jude wants us to apply in our lives. And they are also reminders that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who died for us, a shepherd who died for us and who will rescue us and guard us and protect us to the end. He is a Savior who not only promises life, but gives it. He gives it abundantly, miraculously, transformingly life. He is a Savior who always comes true on His promises. He is a Savior who, who will keep us from being deceived by false teachers and false gospels. He is our Savior who will keep us from stumbling into ungodliness and unbelief. We need a Savior, and we have a Savior who has promised to present us before God our Father, blameless one day with great joy. We have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. So today, and every day, obey Him, trust Him, love Him, and follow Jesus. God, all we can do is say, help us. I pray that your spirit would take your word that I've tried to preach and that Jude has made very clear. Help us to find our security in Christ and in Christ alone. I pray that you would do two things this morning, Lord. I pray that 
you would cause those who are not trusting you to trust you. I pray that that would either be for the first time that you would bring men and women to yourself who have never trusted Jesus, have never been truly converted, but you would bring them to a saving faith in Jesus. And I pray for those of us who have actually been living in rebellion. We are saved. We love you, but we also have been living as lords of our own life. I pray that you would grant repentance to the Christians here who, brothers and sisters who need your grace to remind them of the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ, but also that will transform them. Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing too much guilt. That, that guilt is coming from Satan. It's not coming from the gospel. I pray that you would remind them that the one Christ who began a good work in them will complete it. So I pray that you would not let Satan mess with your people, but that your spirit would come alongside and give the assurance of those who are truly redeemed. Help us to never presume upon your grace, but let us trust that it is amazing and will change us. We ask that you would do this for your glory, and we thank you that you answer prayer in Jesus' name.